John 18, join me there in your Bibles, John chapter 18. And we are picking up where we left off last week. We are in verses 28 through 40, John 18, verses 28 through 40, where the King of Kings, our Savior, now stands before the ruler of Rome, and he is about to be condemned to death. He's about to be sent to his cross to die. John 18, 28 through 40. And if you were here with us last week, you know that this is a trial filled with many ironies. We have the irony of depravity as the religious leaders in verse 28 refuse to defile themselves ritualistically by entering a Gentile's home, yet they are in actuality defiled at their very core. They have broken a dozen laws in order to secure an unjust verdict and a cruel execution of an innocent man. It's the irony of depravity. You have the irony in verse 31 of Pilate challenging the religious leaders to find Jesus guilty of breaking their Jewish law. Ironic because Jesus is the only one who ever fulfilled that law to perfection. It's the irony of his righteousness. In verse 32, we have the irony of sinful man being used by a sovereign God to fulfill his perfect will of redemption for his people. We need to ask that question in verse 31, why does Pilate not end the trial here? Why does Pilate not dismiss these religious leaders, the very leaders Pilate loathes, the ones who have brought him no evidence, no witnesses to substantiate any of their charges against Jesus. Why not end the trial here? Verse 31, answer, because of verse 32, to fulfill sovereignty now, to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. This is the irony of sinful man in their attempt to destroy God's son actually carrying out the son's saving design. It's irony after irony that fills this trial. And yet, as we saw last week, the greatest irony of all within this passage is that Jesus stands before Pilate, and it's a trial between two rival kings. You have the rightful king of the Jews, the king of kings. He looks nothing like a king. He's bound, he's exhausted. He'll soon be beaten and bloodied and flogged. And he stands before the Roman ruler Pilate. Pilate represents Caesar, the king of the Gentiles seems to hold Jesus' life in his hands. And Pilate will mock Jesus' kingship at every turn. Pilate thinks he can stand in judgment on Christ. Pilate thinks that Jesus offers him no threat. Pilate is, unbeknownst to him, one of the kings prophesied in Psalm 2. One of the kings who takes their stand against Yahweh and against his anointed, against the true and final and eternal king. It's the irony of kingship and authority. It's how we've been working our way through this opening trial before Pilate. We've been noting these kingly ironies, each of them revealing the royal majesty of Jesus. It's a kingship, a royalty Pilate failed to see. 
It's a drama. It's a drama that unfolds in eight acts. We saw the first three last week. Let's get a running start. Verses 28 through 30, we saw act number one, which we entitled The Innocence of the King. The Innocence of the King. Verses 28 through 30, you have Jesus' perfection set against the hypocrisy and the jealousy and the murderous plans of these religious leaders. They are evil leaders. They come to Pilate with no legal grounds to substantiate their claims. They're arrogant leaders. They ask Pilate to pronounce capital punishment upon their enemy based upon verse 30. If this man were not an evildoer, we would have not delivered him to you. It's a backhanded admission of Jesus' innocence. That innocence will be made clear within this trial. This is the innocence of the king. It led into act number two and the sovereignty of the king. The sovereignty of the king. No evidence should mean no trial. No witnesses should mean no verdict. And yet there is a trial. There will be a verdict. Again, why? It's because of sovereign control. Christ is in control of these events. His words, we just read it in verse 32. His words must be fulfilled. He must be that righteous sufferer of Psalm 22 whose hands and feet will be pierced. He must be that suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who will hang upon a tree, a visible symbol of being smitten and afflicted by God himself. He will be the Savior raised above the earth. That's what he promised in John 12, who will draw all kinds of men, Jew and Gentile, to himself in salvation. Pilate scorns justice because salvation must be accomplished. Jesus' words must be fulfilled. Again, the sovereignty of the king. It led into act number three, the veiled majesty of the king. The veiled majesty of the king. This is where Pilate's mocking question in verse 33 comes into play. Read it. Are you, you poor, pathetic man who stands before me, bound in ropes at my mercy, are you the king of the Jews? Is that who you think you are? Pilate has no fear of Jesus. He sees Jesus as no king. He sees Jesus as no threat to himself or Rome. And yet the irony that we saw last week is that Pilate could not have been any more wrong. Though Pilate stands in judgment on Jesus this day, Jesus will sit in judgment upon all of mankind, including Pilate, in a future day. In his majesty, though veiled here in this passage, his majesty will be revealed. It's the Revelation 20 scene it will be the most frightening scene imaginable as the final king, the authoritative judge, takes his rightful seat upon a white throne and pronounces eternal condemnation on everyone, everyone who has rejected him and his gospel. That's the irony here. But that future day of judgment is not this day. 
as we pick up the story where we left it, act number four. Act number four, where we see the composure of the king. The composure of the king. Jesus has been mocked by Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? And yet Jesus refuses to revile in return. Just using Peter's word, first Peter, Peter's words, first Peter three. He will not return evil for evil or insult for insult. And Jesus will not be intimidated by this earthly ruler. And so verse 34, Jesus, with a kingly calmness now, Jesus answered, are you, Pilate, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Let's put in these words. What is the charge you're making against me, Pilate? What's the charge? What's your accusation? If you're mocking question about my kingship, are you asking if I am planning to raise a military army, overthrow Rome? Is that what you're charging me with? Are you saying this on your own initiative? Is that what you believe? Or, continue verse 34, did others tell you about me? Have you been presented with any witnesses? Has any witnesses come forth? Is there any evidence that has been offered to, again, substantiate these accusations? Let's put it in these words. Pilate, are you going to uphold justice? Are you going to follow the law of the land, or are you going to be used as a pawn to carry out the Jewish leader's evil plans. What is it going to be, Pilate? What's your decision? Verse 35, Pilate answers Jesus with disdain. I am not a Jew, am I? How dare you speak to me, one who represents Caesar in this way? How dare you, Jesus? On every other occasion, a prisoner, especially one who faced possible crucifixion, every other occasion, a prisoner would have cowered before this judge. He would have pleaded for his life, but not Jesus. Again, this is another irony. Jesus is standing here in actuality, standing in judgment on Pilate. He's standing in judgment on Pilate. He's questioning Pilate. He's challenging Pilate's accusation. He's calling into question the legitimacy of Pilate's charge. And all Pilate can do is skirt the issue and say, verse 35, your own nation and the chief priests, notice, no witnesses. The chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Incriminate yourself, Jesus. Sounds an awful lot like what we saw when Jesus faced Annas and Caiaphas. Give us the evidence we can't come up with ourselves. You have a contrast of characters here. You have the religious leaders, they're enraged with Jesus. They're fuming for murder. They're breaking every law, trying to circumvent the justice system in any way they can. You have Pilate exasperated and proud 
He's trying to appease the Jewish leaders, but he's also trying to uphold justice. He's searching for some evidence. And then you have Christ, the only one completely composed in this entire situation. And he's the one facing death. And he's standing here in a kingly calmness, unfazed by the leader he stands before. What is Jesus doing here? He's fulfilling Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, seven, while oppressed and afflicted, he did not open his mouth in any anger. The words of 1 Peter, while suffering, suffering injustice, he in faith uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Fuming anger is met with faithful trust. Let's ask the question, why? Why does Jesus respond in this way? And I would suggest because Jesus knows Psalm 2. He knows Psalm 2, that even when the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, he knows, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens, his father, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at the audacity that evil men think they can thwart the sovereign redemptive plan. He knows that the Lord actually scoffs at them. This is faithful trust. This is kingly calmness. This is the composure of a king who trusts his sovereign father completely, completely. Leads into act number five. Act number five, we see the defense of the king. The defense of the king. Since Pilate has heard the Jewish leader's charge against Jesus, the charge that he is an insurrectionist who is planning on taking over Rome, and since Pilate has not dismissed the case against him, again, he has no evidence, no witnesses, Jesus now, as king, seeks to set the record straight. No evidence has been presented, no defense. He will offer his own defense here. And it's masterful. It's a masterful defense that Jesus offers. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom. So that's an amazing statement now. My kingdom. Christ is not shy about his kingship. So notice here, he's claiming to possess a kingdom that belongs to him. He is a king. But Jesus makes it clear, his kingdom, my kingdom, underline this, is not of this world. Now know what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not denying the physical nature of his coming kingdom. He's not denying that. It's not Jesus' point. Jesus' kingdom will be a physical kingdom. It will be a kingdom established on earth. That's coming. You see that throughout the Old Testament, Davidic covenant, Christ will sit on an actual throne. He will rule from Jerusalem. He knows Psalm 2. We quoted it two times already. Psalm 2, 
This king will be coronated. He will be installed upon Zion, my holy mountain. His kingship is coming. He will fulfill the Davidic covenant. The government, Isaiah 9, the government will rest on his shoulders. Christ will fulfill Psalm 72, 8. He will rule from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. That's coming. Christ is the king promised in Daniel 7. I love the passage. Daniel 7, the one who will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. That's a physical kingdom on earth. When this kingdom is finally established, his dominion will be an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's the physical, earthly, from sea to sea kingdom that is coming. And Jesus is not denying that with those words, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not denying that. Jesus' point with those words, not of this world, is that his coming kingdom, though it will be physical and earthly, it will not be established by any earthly means. It will not be established by any earthly means. Daniel 2 is clear. The God of heaven, not some earthly army, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. God's bringing the kingdom. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. It's what we see in Revelation 19. Christ comes with a heavenly army. Christ's kingdom needs no military uprising to bring it into power, none. He needs no earthly revolt to establish his reign that's coming. That's what the words not of this earth means here. Let's put it in our own words then. Pilate, I am not the insurrectionist the Jews have accused me of being. I'm leading no armed battalion against you or Caesar. It's not what I'm doing. I pose, at least at this point in history, I pose no threat to Rome. And here's the evidence to prove it. Here's my evidence. You have none. I'll give you some. Continue verse 36. If my kingdom were of this world, if my kingly reign depended upon earthly weapons or an earthly army or some insurrectionist revolt, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. If I was planning on overthrowing Rome, then I would not be standing before you right now because my army would have waged their war. And I would have either been killed in the process or I would have ridden into Jerusalem victorious. But what actually has happened, my supposed army of fishermen, they fled. They're nowhere here. And I stand before you bound, offering you no resistance. There's my evidence, Pilate, for your case. That's my defense. It's another irony then. 
Though the Jewish leaders offer no evidence to prove Jesus is an insurrectionist, they claim him to be. The very fact that they have handed Jesus over to Pilate without Jesus putting up a fight, that's actually evidence he is not the insurrectionist they claim him to be. It's the irony. That's his defense. Leads into act number six. Act number six. We see the invitation of the king. The invitation of the king. Verse 37, therefore Pilate, and he's picking up now in Jesus' words, my kingdom. Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And at this point, it seems that Pilate has dropped his mocking guard for just a moment, just a moment. He's intrigued by Jesus' kingly claim. He's heard the defense. He's seen Jesus' evidence. The evidence is standing right next to him. And so Jesus then moves from defense attorney to now evangelist. Notice Jesus' response. He actually calls Pilate to come to him in saving faith. Continue verse 37. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. You are right, Pilate. Your words are true. That's your testimony. But understand, Pilate, my kingship is far greater than you realize. You're speaking far greater than you know. Verse 37, for this reason I have been born. Kingdom rule is my destiny. To which Jesus then adds this odd statement. It's highly theological. It's something no mere man, not even the greatest of kings could ever say about himself. Continue verse 37. And for this I have come, implied I have come from heaven into the world. With that one statement, Jesus has just put himself and his kingly identity into a category all its own. He is no ordinary king. He has just claimed for himself deity. I've come from heaven. It's my heavenly origin, my preexistence, my eternality. It's the claim of incarnation. I am heaven's king. I am heaven's king. Christ is claiming to be the promised king of Isaiah 9. You can see the similarities for a child will be born to us. We know that passage. A child will be born to us. That's very similar to what Jesus says here. For this I have been born. And then in Isaiah 9, we also see a son will be given. Again, this is Christ now parroting that. For this I have come into the world. I've been given, I've been sent. My kingship's coming. I'm that king. Don't forget Isaiah 9 leads into Isaiah 52 where that very king that is sent, that very child, where the government will rest on his shoulders, that is the king before whom all kings will shut their mouths. Isaiah 52, 15. I've been sent. I'm heaven's king. This brings us back to John 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Eternality. And yet this Word of God, who shared the same eternality and nature and essence as God the Father, though he's a distinct person from God the Father, he does not stay in the heavens. The Word became flesh. He was sent. He came. Brings us back to all those numerous times Jesus claimed to have been sent by God, numerous throughout this gospel. So you are a king, that's Pilate's question. Jesus says, I'm a divine king. I'm an eternal king. And this is Christ's gospel. This is Christ's gospel. A kingdom is coming, that's our hope. A kingdom is coming And he is the king who will rule this kingdom. And when that kingdom is established, listen, if America is still around, his kingdom will crush the American kingdom. It's the perfect kingdom. It's the divine kingdom. Continue verse 37. He says the truth, the truth to which I testify, that truth must not be dismissed. My kingdom cannot be dismissed. The truth You must accept this. This has eternal ramifications. This is the truth. This is the gospel of the kingdom that will save you from final judgment. This is the truth that will give you access into Christ's coming, eternal, glorious kingdom. This is the gospel truth of the coming kingdom. Truth that Jesus then calls Pilate to believe. Again, Jesus turns into the evangelist. He asks Pilate, calls Pilate to embrace this gospel, this kingdom for himself. Finish the verse, verse 37. Everyone, even you, Pilate, and remember the irony now. And Jesus is standing in judgment upon Pilate. Jesus is asking the questions now. Everyone, even you, Pilate, who is of the truth, everyone who stands on the side of this gospel truth, everyone who will be granted access into this coming kingdom of truth. If that is going to be you, you must hear, you must obey, and you must follow my voice. You must follow and hear my words. Embrace what I say about myself. Believe that I am the eternal king I claim to be. Believe that I've been sent by God And if I am that king, then your response must be to bow before my royal authority. That's what you do with a king. You bow before him. So the implied question here is this, Pilate, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to give up your political pride? Are you willing to give up your polytheistic religion and follow me as the one sent from heaven? Are you willing to be one of my followers? One of my kingdom citizens? Let me add here, this is still the same gospel call today. This is the gospel call. It is only when the sinner confesses Jesus as Lord, as King, that they will be saved. 
It is the lordship of Christ that is the Christian confession of faith. It's 1 Corinthians 12. No one can say Jesus is who? Lord. No one can say Jesus, no one can say Jesus is king except by the Holy Spirit. It takes the supernatural work of the Spirit for the sinner to relinquish his sinful pride and submit to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus. Well, in this case, it was a gospel call that was quickly rebuffed by this proud ruler. Look at verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And this is not a philosophical question. This is a dismissive reply. What is truth? What is this supposed truth you are talking about? You don't speak truth, Jesus. You speak nothing but foolishness, absurdity. You expect me to follow you, listen to you, obey your word, bow before you, your kingship? You're no king let alone, you're no king sent by God from heaven. And with that, Pilate's soul is now sealed. His date to stand in judgment before the true king, the final judge, that date has now been set. Leads in act number seven. Act number seven, the attempted release of the king the attempted release of the king. Thinking Jesus to be nothing more than a fool. Verse 38, Pilate went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. It's a declaration of innocence here. It's a testimony of Jesus's perfection, his righteousness. Again, the emphasis, Jesus will be that unblemished lamb who will be slaughtered on the cross. But Pilate doesn't mean any of those things with these words. Again, he's speaking greater than he knows. Again, this is irony. All Pilate has in mind here is that Jesus is clearly no revolutionary. He's a fool at best. He presented no danger to Rome. He's no threat to Caesar, and thus he must be released. And the I here is emphatic, I myself, as opposed to the Jewish leaders, I find no guilt in him. I see your jealousy. I will not be intimidated by your bluster and manipulation. I see it all clearly. And so again, just like he should have done in verse 31, just like that, Pilate should have dismissed all charges against Jesus here in verse 38. He should have released the prisoner. But Pilate does not release Jesus. Why? Because he cared more about his own reputation. He cared about his ascension in the political ranks. So he will not uphold justice. He is a living picture, Pilate is, of someone willing to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul. I'm going to bring the other gospels into play. It fills in the scene here. According to Mark 15, at this point, the chief priests, they're 
They're filled with anger. The chief priests began to accuse Jesus harshly, great intensity. So just imagine the scene now. It's uncontrolled rage now taking over. Luke adds, they kept insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea. So charge after charge is now hurled at Jesus, but in reality, the chief priests are stirring up the people. They've now gathered. They're being instigated. They'll become agitated. We'll see that in verses 39 and 40. And all of this puts Pilate in a precarious situation. He's backed himself into a corner, really. The last thing Pilate wants is word to get back to Caesar of a riot breaking out in the land he's supposed to govern. It's not a good look. Especially a riot because he would not convict someone charged with treason against Caesar. But at the same time, Pilate knows Jesus to be innocent. He's unwilling at this point to convict Jesus of any crime. So what's Pilate gonna do? How does he get out of this? Horns of a dilemma. Well, we'll continue Luke's account. Pilate hears the religious leaders say he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, but then he hears this statement, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place, and now Pilate thinks he's found his way out. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Herod Herod would have been there for the feast. So now he sends him to Herod. Here's my way out. Let Herod take this over. This is where that second phase of Jesus' civil trial fits in. Remember, three religious trials, three civil trials. Here's the second civil trial. It's Jesus' trial before Herod. And God's sovereignty will have its way because in God's sovereignty, conviction by Herod will not do. If Herod convicts him, then Jesus will die, but he will die where? In Galilee. But Jesus cannot die in Galilee. He must die in Jerusalem outside the gate, Leviticus 4, outside the camp. And so in God's providence, you can read it on your own, Luke 23. God's providence, Herod, just like Caiaphas and Pilate before him, he was unable to find Jesus guilty of any crime. And so Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. It's a game of political hot potato. You take the prisoner now. You deal with the troublemaker. The details are important. Why? Because at this point, the law of innocence has been fulfilled for Jesus, the law of innocence. Deuteronomy 19, it is clear on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. What do we have now? Three witnesses. Caiaphas, can't bring any charge before Pilate. Pilate, verse 37, I find no guilt in him. And now Herod, Jesus is not guilty. The case should be over. And yet back to verse 32. The redemptive plan of God must be fulfilled. The word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die, that must come to pass. He must be sent to the cross. So it leads into act number eight. 
Act number eight, the rejection of the king. The rejection of the king. Find another irony here. The mob now becomes the ruler. Pilate turns his governing authority over to the people. Again, Pilate's dilemma, he knows Jesus to be innocent, but he does not want a riot to break out. So verse 39 here. But you, Pilate says, he asks, but you, speaking to the crowd that has gathered now, early morning, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Again, this is Pilate's way of thinking. This is his way out. This is a sign of goodwill to his subjects. This was the governor's custom every Passover. It's a commemoration of Israel being released from Egypt, captivity. So Pilate then will release a prisoner for them. Type of pardon, an act of diplomacy. Continue verse 39. Pilate gives the people the choice. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Or will it be Barabbas who was a robber? So the choice seems simple. Robber here, lace taste, not a petty thief, but one who seizes and plunders. You want the king or do you want the bandit? Do you want someone released who threatens your own livelihood, who steals from you? Mark notes that Barabbas was a murderer. Matthew adds that he's a notorious prisoner, well-known. He's a violent man. He's a rebel, an outlaw, a rogue thief. He's out for his own personal gain. He's a threat to his own countrymen. So you'd think it's the perfect scenario. You would think, right? Pilate will offer the decision to the crowd, the very crowd who praised Jesus when he rode into town. They'll certainly choose the king over the terrorist. And thus he'll be able to let Jesus go free. He'll spurn the religious leaders who have tried to twist his arm to do their bidding He'll ease his own conscience. He knows Jesus to be innocent. The Jewish leaders won't be able to report him back to Rome. A riot will be averted. It's the perfect scenario, the perfect scenario, except it's not. Because according to Mark 15, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And that word stirred up there, it's a word used to describe earthquakes, storms. You can imagine the scene. The priests shake the emotions of the people. They repeat their accusations. They're calling into question Jesus' kingship. Shame, honor, culture. No true Messiah would ever stand captive before a Roman ruler. No true Messiah would endure such indignities before a Gentile king. You think he's the king you've been waiting for? The priests are playing on the depraved desires of the crowd. So the crowd then stirred. Look at verse 40. They 
cried out. Again, this is a chaotic scene that's breaking forth. They cried out again, not this man, not this Jesus. He's not the king we want. We want who? We want Barabbas. Let the condemned criminal go. Execute the imposter. And this is where we find the final irony of the story. Because Barabbas, that is not the personal name of this thief. It's an Aramaic word that simply means, it's a general word that simply means son of the father. Barabbas, son of the father. So what has the crowd just done? We choose the no-named, sinful son of the father instead of Jesus, who is the perfect and eternal son of the father. Give us that son of the father. We don't want the true son of the father. And with that, Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 22. He has become a reproach of men and despised by the people. He has fulfilled Isaiah 49. He is the one abhorred by the nation. And he has fulfilled Isaiah 53. He has become forsaken of men and is now ready to be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All of this is evil. Jealous leaders filled with rage. An arrogant judge unwilling to uphold justice. There is a fickle crowd who cries for blood. And yet here's the principle. What man means for evil, God what? He always means it for good. And through this evil, evil will reign here. Through this evil, the saving plan of a redeeming God will be accomplished. This is the greatest of truths. This is the most beautiful of gospels. This is God's redeeming work being planned and carried out under the shade of sin's ugliness. And yet Christ, we see here in love for his Father's glory, in love for us who need this sacrifice, he will indeed go to the cross to die for us. All of it evil, yet God's sovereign plan working out to perfection. And it's what we celebrate this morning. We look back and we see the perfect life, the innocence of our Savior. We think of his sacrificial death and we do that because we know that in three days, what happened? He conquered death. He rose again from the dead. Father, as we prepare to remember the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, we are thankful that at every moment within this trial, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy of the suffering servant. He's fulfilling your words of the Savior you sent. Christ, we praise you for being the righteous one who stood in our place. 
Thank you that you were condemned so that we would not be condemned by your Father. We thank you that in mercy, you grant us life through your resurrection from the dead. Let us remember that now with praise and humility. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.